it's all about self-determines, self-confidence, empowerment. Welcome to Curating Tools, a podcast which explores the practical aspects of curatorial work. Through conversations with some of the most prolific curators and art professionals in the creative sector, we aim to provide you with tools and advice to help you develop your curatorial practice. This podcast is brought to you by Call for Curators, a platform promoting professional opportunities since 2012 and Node Center for Curatorial Studies, the first e-learning platform for curators and art professionals founded in 2009. Call for Curators members get access to the expanded versions and members-only episodes of the Curating Tools podcast. Prior to recording, they have the opportunity to send questions to our guests and then hear their responses in the expanded episodes. If you'd like to shape upcoming episodes and gain access to more members-only content, try our membership, which starts at only €2.95 per month. Get a free trial via the link in the description. I'm your host, Maria Zinkir, and today I'm joined by Bridget Bosold, who is an independent financial coach and consultant, as well as a board member of the Schwules Museum Berlin. She has been crucial to the dynamic development of the museum over the past decade, not least by designing and implementing successful fundraising strategies. After completing her studies and doctorate in literature, she worked at various renowned banks and has been a freelance consultant in portfolio management for, for small companies, foundations, and private clients for more than 15 years. Welcome to the podcast and thank you for being uh, being here with me today. Yeah, thank you for the invitation. I'm happy to talk with you. Yeah, it's really a pleasure. And I just read your um, your bio. So you have a doctorate in literature, um, which took you to work as an art curator at the Schwules Museum, then in private banking. Um, so this is definitely not a typical career path um, that students who study literature on art imagine. <laughs> so could you tell us a little bit about your practice and your journey? To start with, I always was attracted by numbers as well as by characters. I was attracted by reading and writing as well as by counting and calculating, right? So it was always this, both of these sides were part of my personal uh, interests. When I was thinking about, oh, what, what should I study? There was also the always this tension between either humanities or economics. Best case would have been to do both. Uh, and today I would do both. I would like maybe study some like a humanity, like literature or art history or history or something like that. But I also would start studying economics because it's so interesting. But at that time, uh, like students, uh, you know, the, the expression popper, it was like a kind of specific youth culture in the beginning of the 80s, like the Polish shirt people wearing Benetton and having this like very kind of conservative uh, hair, haircuts and so on and so on. And this type of people were the, the majority of people studying uh, economics. Mm -hmm. And as a young punk feminist dyke, I really couldn't imagine to have to deal with these people all the time for years, right? So I ended up uh, with humanities literature. And when I finished um, my studies... Um, that was in the middle of the 90s or so, 
uh, at that time, and even today, we were talking about it before, it's so difficult to somehow get a properly paid job within like within this creative industry, if you are not like a graphic designer or like an architect or so. Producing, basically, it's like creation is a conceptual work and it's so difficult to, to find like proper paid uh, jobs in this field. And so after my, um, when I finished PhD, I again was thinking, oh, what could I do? And so I decided and somehow to go back to my second passion. Um, and that was um, the financial industry. And so I started to work as like a Quereinsteiger. I don't know the, the German work, uh, where it's someone coming from a different field, which is not so unusual in this uh, industry. There are many people, people coming from somewhere else doing these jobs because it has... It has to do, um, it, it's very much about communication, for sure. And it's very much about uh, being able to learn. And if you yeah, completed like a PhD within humanities, you somehow do know how to learn and how to research and how to uh, investigate like things, right? Yeah, you get a lot of these transferable skills. Yeah, yes, so, and I would also say it's it's great that I do have both of these fields because I really I I really love well written essays, but I also love um, well organized Excel sheets. So, and it's for me it's very good to have both of these uh, sides. And somehow they are not for me it's not so far away. And what I also wanted to say, and I think that's important for people listening to us dealing with business or calculation and numbers within this field is it's not so much about mathematics basically you need like the basic arithmetic skills you learn maybe not in primary school but at least in high school so it's it's not like high mathematics it's much more like down to the earth with very very basic skills uh, regarding counting and calculating right because I'm also not the mathematics freak. A lot of it is, like you said, these skills that most people in humanities have because we are used to writing long essays, conducting very rigorous research, looking at a lot of sources, critical thinking. And my, my, my like basic job is, is, in fact, it's critical thinking because I'm like working as so-called second opinion it's like a kind of controlling of the work of uh, portfolio managers and investment consultants. It's critical thinking in a way to really look, what do they say? Does it really work? What are the risks? What are like the difficult problematic sides of this concept, whatever, whatever. And so far it's for me very similar to the work I do with incuration because it's also for me so much about bringing in different critical views I started working within the financial industry, let's say, 20 years ago. No, 25 years ago, right? So I was working for some years in different banks, blah, blah, blah. And then I went to Berlin in the beginning of the 80s. And uh, at that time, there was like a really yeah, fascinating lesbian subculture. And I was always involved in activist work, right? I was editor of a feminist, radical feminist magazine. 
uh, I, we did workshops and demonstrations and whatever, whatever. So I was always involved in queer and feminist activism. Uh, and that was part of the, the or that was one of the reasons why I was asked to become member of the board in the beginning, like in 2006. At that time, Schwules Museum was um, exclusively like male gay uh, institution and mm. as well a male gay, uh, cis male gay uh, board. So, and I was asked as the first female, so-called female person. And that was because I was like this kind of activist person uh, involved in lesbian context as well as in queer context at that time. And and the second uh, reason also was because I was familiar with numbers because they, as the museum was an institution or they had some money to deal with, um, they needed someone who has like kind of skills in that area. And that was the reason why I was asked. I So I was a bit honored uh, and so I said yes, even though I at that time I couldn't imagine to stay for decades. That that was not a plan. But you have a very long long relationship with the museum. Yeah, it's a very very long uh, relationship. Yes, I started I think two thousand six or so, and when I w- when I started, it was just yeah I, I I was thinking maybe one or two years just to see how it works, and then I will see. And then I ended up, like, my first show, uh, I set up with no money. It was low and no budget. And it was the first show in Berlin about lesbian history in in West Berlin, like the lesbian activism, lesbian feminist activism. That was the first show. And I really loved to do shows. I didn't know it before because I even didn't know let's say when I was studying literature, I didn't even didn't know that there was something like a profession called curator. I didn't know that. I was more like in, yeah, as an editor editor of a magazine, I was more like in journalism or yeah, editing books or something like that. But I had no idea about museums. And for me, to set up shows uh, in the Schules Museum is very, very interesting uh, to intervene in political discourses, to change narratives, to change, like, also power um, relations, right? To include f- so-called female views into this queer perspectives. It's one of the things I really like. And I've, I find that shows um, are or the, the way I, it's not art I basically create, it's more like histor- cultural historical shows, mm-hmm. right? Which also do deal with art for sure, but uh, in it's more like setting up narratives, political narratives, uh, political history, cultural history narratives. So, and I find it's a, a very, very effective as well as like in, in comparison to writing political programs, I would say it's much more boring than to do a show or to to create a show because you can't deal with so many different I'm I'm even today after 20 years I'm still very fascinated to to work with objects so with like this kind of magic of objects I really love to work with that and to use it to tell a story like formulating programs or a message basic strong message you want to really 
bring in the public. Yeah, I was going to say that you mentioned you edited magazines and journals uh, in this kind of activist area, uh, but I assume that in comparison to the, the curating shows that creates um, a presence in the physical space uh, for this activism and something very tangible where people can gather, can discuss, and, and you can see the audience. You, you Most of the time you can't yeah. see people reading the stuff you, you write, but you can see yeah, people right. enjoying and appreciating yeah. and learning in, in the space. I think it's also in a way it's much more complex or let's say if you want to create the complexity of a show within a text, you need to be able to write very, very well. You need to write literature, as I can't. I just can't write like essays or like kind of uh, exhibition texts or so, but I can't write poems. But to include or to to create the complexity of a show which, which has this, this space itself, the objects, the design, and text for sure. It's it's a very complex like body, yeah, to formulate your message and to make this or to make this complexity possible with just a text, with just some characters, that's that, that's a complete for me it's at least a completely different kind of level of writing, which I can't. Then the text is not like the text, it's more like an object itself, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think people like myself who study humanities can really appreciate this in exhibitions. But speaking, you know, from my own experience as well, um, I know that I had little emphasis on the financial reality of working in the arts. Uh, there was little of that in my education. Um, and I'm sure that's experience of other people as well. Why do you think that is, like, I think this is a question that's also quite specific to the arts, because if you choose a more traditional career path, like, let's say, a doctor, lawyer, or something else, you can opt out, up, um, you can opt to have a very clear professional trajectory, you know, where to apply and what to do in the arts, that is a bit more difficult. Oftentimes you graduate and you end up on your own unless you have some tangible skills like graphic design or skills that can be used in other areas, you cannot produce a thing. Curators can't produce things just like that. And this job is specific in a sense that it requires a lot of space and it is a process. So why do you think that is that art schools don't prepare students for the financial reality of working in the arts? I find that it's like, like a real disaster. Uh, I would say generally you could say even you are a doctor or whatever, a lawyer, everyone should have like this basic skills, what I would call financial literacy, like really basic skills. You have to, at least I, in my perspective, you should know what's going on in the stock markets and you should know what what it means to to loan money and why this costs money. And, and you do you should know like basic concepts like inflation, or something like that, right? Um, everyone should know that because, like, that's part of our world, and it's like being able to navigate in everyday life because everyone has to do something, like with, with like salaries, taxes, insurance, um, retirement plans, whatever. Uh, I don't know why this is not part of the regular, like, school education. I don't know. 
and it doesn't and I also would say even people studying whatever whatever they should have within their studies like courses every year like a workshop or two workshops to to yeah to get like this basic skills to learn that I don't know why it is I would say it's a part of the power play because as long people do not know it uh like the financial industry at least in Germany is really strong uh and intervening in politics and they are not very much interested that people do have the skills to really understand what's going on and what like which kind of products they offer and how they work and what they cost and whatever right so i would say for, at least for me it's part of the power play but also keeping this special knowledge because knowledge is power and as long you don't have the knowledge and the skills you are not able to yeah to to deal with these guys it's i've i find it a bit similar to health like the health system like all this complicated uh, procedures and all this complicated words vocabulary you have to learn to understand what the doctors say it's also part of the this keeping the hegemonial relation between doctors and patients or in the case of uh, the financial industry between the bankers and the clients so and and again back to my approach at Schulz Museum and in my own uh, job it's for me basically the same because it's all about self-determinance uh, self-confidence empowerment i really want to empower people to take the their financials in their own hands and to be able to to take decisions based on their knowledge and based on their values and based on their own like being able to make decisions right they should be the decision makers so and it's very similar like queer emancipation is also about self de determination it's about emancipation it's about uh, like organizing your own life as you want i i want to go back to the the question why in art schools i don't i don't know why they don't why they don't do that but i also do not understand why students do not demand i would say you should tell your your universities and schools to say hey we need that please offer that i don't understand why people do not because like the students in a way they are the clients right they could ask for certain yeah certain courses and i don't know why people don't don't uh, demand for that one like specific and you're right i would say even i would say generally everyone should have this basic führerschein like the driver's license to navigate within the the financial system right as you need the driver's license to navigate with your car or with a car you also need this kind of license to know ah What what are the rules? How I need to navigate to be more or less safe? Specifically in the art world, you're right. That's not kind of straight career, right? You don't know how it works, and you are much more an entrepreneur as an artist. That, that that's the base you're working on, and even the more you need the skills because you are not like the the regular uh, employee employee. You will not become a regular employee as an artist. You will stay as kind of an entrepreneur to, yeah, somehow also to deal with markets. And I think maybe it, it also goes back to the history I was talking about before. Like, because art, as it was, like, when it started to become, like, a specific sphere, it was, like, uh, shaped or 
set as a counter reality against like the harsh business world, right? The harsh economic world outside. And I think that might be like an echo even today within art schools that there is kind of distance to to the world of business. Absolutely. I think I think within the educational art education, um there's an emphasis and focus on non-profit but even like even within the non-profit it's it's called non-profit but even in the non-profit world you need to navigate as an entrepreneur and i would say the schules museum is also like a non-profit business right for me it's not that much different to write applications to a, a non-profit uh, foundation or to the state Or to get money from like a private, uh, it's also, it's about sales. It's about selling. It's about, you need to have this basic marketing skills. You need to be able to sell your ideas. I would say there is not a big difference between the market and the so-called non-profit uh, sphere. Because even in the non-profit sphere, there are juries, yeah. right? They, they would decide if they would buy your concept or not. So you need to sell them the concept and you need to kind of know how. And that should be definitely taught within the arts. So that kind of leads very nicely into a question we're going to jump a bit forward. But about these, there are two, men, two different or at least many different art worlds. Um, and kind of, I guess we can differentiate between one that's more focused on the art market or the art market itself, where there's uh, loads of money millions of dollars being uh, spent on artworks uh, and then the nonprofit sector or the sector that's um, focused less so on the financial aspect. And kind of um, depending on which area you're closer to, does the need for financial literacy change? If you're more frugal and you have less smaller budgets to work with, do you need to uh, be more savvy in finance? Yeah, maybe you have you have to be even better. I would say, I would say first of all, like this art market is a very like untypical market. Uh, it's a so-called the winner takes it all market. Uh, it means like regular markets. There are many different smaller companies or even uh, freelancer, like for example, graphic designers. It's like a very like yeah heterogeneous market like very like smaller smaller businesses a lot of business uh like competition but in this art market there are only a handful of people who really earn money it's it's very sim similar to the statistics we were talking before the vast majority of the um, um the vast majority of the artists are like, basically, they do not earn any money within this market. Uh, it, it's taken by a handful of the stars. Uh, I can't remember exactly the numbers, but some years ago, there was a really big um, study about the art market. And the finding was that I think the, the fifth most uh, popular male artists earn much more money than all the rest of the female artists yes, in this uh, statistics, something like that. So you can see it's not very likely that you would get into this in this high-end position. 
and it's not i i definitely would also say it's not about the quality of your art it's just a lot of like good luck um like lottery and some factors like connections um yeah your your personal background your family background whatever right there are some factors which might have an, a strong impact but in the end i would say 99% of that it's just a lottery if you become like the next any warhol or so right and th- and therefore i would say um i don't know because it's in in a way it's 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 not very like regular economic sphere uh i don't know which kind of uh like skills financial skills you need within this top 10 positions and i think it's not worth to think about it because it's not very likely that you end up there it's very interesting to have it pointed out that it's very similar and and the top five people uh, get or kind of get most of their money you know or there's a there's a few big players in in this area yeah, and, but I was also thinking about this comparison between art market and the nonprofit. I was thinking from a perspective of curator or like manager, art managers, people who not don't necessarily sell sell art, they own art, um, but work with budgets in these two areas. So someone who's a sales manager in a commercial gallery will have budgets that are uh, very different from the nonprofit charity uh, that's you know managed a small small amount. So so is but yeah. does this make a difference in what literacy skills you should have? I would say no, because in the end it's about budgets, and if they are big or not, it's it's about learning to calculate like a realistic budget, uh, and also within the in the spheres where where there is much more money, I would say they also need to to do their budgeting in a in a proper way, and in the end they need to like they they want to to have returns. So it's it's so in so far yes it's different uh, it's different because the return within the nonprofit there is basically no return yeah. right it's not like this kind of focusing on uh, on returns uh, that's I would say that's the main difference between the like the art market that's focused on on returns like profit profit yeah it's yeah take the words that's the nonprofit there is no return. Or at least no financial return. There are returns, and the returns are reputation, having social impact within certain communities, or even in a broader public, um, making a difference for many people. For example, if we next year we will have a sex work exhibition, it's curated mainly by a team of sex workers, and they will tell their great history of sex work in, in Berlin as also cultural history cultural history. And I would say for them and their communities, it's really a, it makes a really diff, big difference that they can that this history now is honored within a museum, right? As a, a very heavily marginalized uh, history. So and that that's the return you get as a curator within this nonprofit area that you that you can make some some differences or help to make differences for people's for people's lives but financially you are not allowed <laughs> which i also find a bit problematic but you are not allowed to um 
to make profits. And within the within the art market, I would say, in the other the other way around, it's all about or it's so much about profit. It it also has certain really difficult sides, right? Yeah, but you know, for I think for a lot of people, um, the social impact is extremely important in the arts. And with that comes a large sense of responsibility and, and ethics, which then makes yes. finances a lot more complicated yeah. because um, there is a lot of money in the arts, as I guess in any industry that isn't clean. Uh, it comes from, you know, weapon dealing or supporting war crimes. And I wanted to ask, what's your position on this from a financial point of view? Because I think, I think it's tricky. Yeah, it's tricky, but I also would say it's a bit uh, kind of naive. That's a bit too much to say, but the the money you get from like governmental uh, institutions, it's the taxes are also basically not, they are not returns of super ethical businesses, right? So in a way you are part of this world, which is, which is like it is, and even you only get or you 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 work only with non-profit organizations or like with um um like f- uh, fundings of the state um where does the money come from in the end it's not ecological uh farming most of the taxes most of the taxes do not come from ecological or uh, green farming it comes from the chemical industry. It comes from the automobile industry. It comes from all these industries, which are really, or even the banking industry, uh, which are really kind of problematic. I think right? that that's 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 really interesting to hear. I think that's an interesting take. That uh, yeah, is often is often um, omitted. Also, like we said in in art schools, because that seems the more. I guess ethical option, but there's no ethical option. <laughs> I guess they all kind of the baseline is they all the, the same. Yeah, I would say it's it's a different if difference if you closely work, for example, for or with the Deutsche Bank, like which is the the biggest bank in in Germany, and it's in many ways it's problematic, right? And to deal with them like directly as part of their funding, it's a difference as to get like a funding from a program of the Senate of Berlin, right? But thinking a bit more deeper in that uh, sphere, in the end, I think there is no clean money. <laughs> now we talked about the professional side of of kind of work, being a freelancer and working working in the arts for for the art market and for non profit institutions. But talking about uh, financial literacy, it doesn't only help in the professional life, but I imagine it's also extremely helpful in dealing with personal finances. Um, and you know, having yeah. this these skills can translate better into money management in professional life as well. So when budgeting for institutions and exhibitions, what's your opinion kind of do these skills translate between professional and personal yeah. life? Is this interconnected? Yeah, definitely. I think it's uh, it's not only skills; it's also mental, um, like a mental setting. Uh, it definitely, I would say, it definitely uh, is connected with each other. That if you are able to to manage your own finances, it's much likely that you are able to manage budgets because you do have like this kind of 
familiarity with uh, planning, calculating, also estimating costs. But budgeting is always about the future, for sure. So you always have to estimate. Uh, you, you also have to deal with insecurity or un uncertainty. You, you never know uh, next year, where are the transportation rates next year to bring an uh, artwork from UK to Germany or the other way around, right? So there is always a, a big part of calculating uh, under the conditions of uncertainty. You don't know. And I, I would say that's one of the very basic mindsets within uh, like dealing with finances because you always have to deal with with future. And we don't know the future and therefore we don't like it. And because we don't know it, we it feels like risk and people don't like risk. Human beings don't like risks for sure because risks, mm, we don't like that. We don't like if we don't know what's going on and what will happen. But f dealing with finances, it's the, the very, very basic mindsets is to be able to deal with, yeah, not knowing what's, what will happen, right? And to deal with it in a, with like in a rational or, yeah, in a rational way. That's for me, one of the very, very basic skills uh, dealing with your personal finances, but also dealing with the finances of an organization or entrepreneurship is the same thing. Like it's always dealing with this, oh, we don't know. And how we can set up something which could survive, like um, you, you have to also think within scenarios, the best case, mid case, worst case. And I always would say really deal, like really focus the, the worst case to understand what could happen. It also can help to reduce fear because if you, you know the worst case, And you know, ah, oh, even the worst case, I will survive. It really puts a lot of like relaxation within your mental uh, or in, in your mental system. That's a bit more philosophical, but I, like I would say, it comes down to this kind of. It's things. definitely great to hear having different scenarios in mind because I feel like a lot of people can be very goal oriented and strive towards something something and then if there is um, something that doesn't go according to the plan they're very much taken off track and uh, kind of lose you know mm -hmm. lose the all the all the planning that they've done is kind of has no use now and people panic make decisions that are hushed yeah. Um, yeah, and, and then kind of have to suffer the consequences There is a lot of uh, research on the connections between stress and also this uh, specific um, chemical uh, cortisone. I don't know the English Cortisol. Yeah, cortisol. Yeah. cortisol, you know, it's like the stress, uh, like the stress essence. Um, so there is a lot of research uh, on the connection between stress and cortisol level and The, the, the decisions you take. The higher the stress you have, the worse you, or it's much more likely that you will take bad financial decisions. And the bad financial decisions you took uh, within the stress level will provoke more stress and provoke more bad decisions. 
And that's something which I also, which is really one of my core work, uh, to really reduce the stress within this com whole area. Therefore, people who are rich become richer because they are much more relaxed. So they are able to take good or rational uh, financial um, decisions. They can deal much better with risks and with like this uncertainty because the stress level is, is lower. And so they it's much more likely, likely that they take good decisions which will make them even richer so they can take even better. That's like this really bad circle of uh, poverty also. Probably one reason why the, the rich are more, re more relaxed, less stress about making risks or taking risks or making financial decisions is because they have something to fall off to. They have the safety net. Um, but these also, speaking of these mindsets and, you know, stress levels, the, it's not only mindset, but I guess there are some, there must be some habits and very kind of practical things you can do maybe on a daily basis that, you know, can produce and help you become more in this mindset or become more uh, relaxed about the finances. I was really thinking a lot about these questions because I, um, I, I'm not sure if if there is really like if there are some habits uh, working for everyone. I think it's highly very individual. What I think is the habit, one of the basic habits, is face it, face the situation, really face the reality, your financial reality. Because I know that very often people do not even know uh, how much money uh, they have on, on their account. Uh, and I think one of the, like, we call it Kassensturz in Germany, a cash mm. check to write down your financial situation, like that you really know it. Because one of the things which I would say cause stress is that you don't, that you don't know to face the, the real situation, uh, because that's the base, then you can like operate on, um, that would say, I would, I would say that's a habit or like a, a practice. A practice which really is helpful for everyone and then people are so different some people they really control every week some control like every month some say ah i do have like a idea what's going on i think it's very very individual and i wouldn't say everyone has to do it in a certain way but to somehow deal with that like find like a, a way you feel feel good with to deal with your finances and that could be very different mm. and what i also want what i also want to really include and and that's also the question what people uh, do get from the course i want to uh, minimize the distance to all these questions and to take out a bit of this fear or this uh oh, it's something dirty and to, to to make you a bit familiar and to and also to introduce that it really can be fun it's also interesting to deal with that and it's a very very good feeling to know oh i can navigate this financial car myself so and that's and that's something i really want to it will not happen that you will know everything after four hours or six hours course right but to really know oh i can learn that it's not so complicated and somehow it's also it feels really good because it's really gives it's like empowerment yeah i think i think it's a great advice to face your fears and and know what your finances are 
um, it's pretty simple and everyone needs to figure it out on their own partially. Um, but I'm sure as a freelancer, this will give you a bit of a peace of mind. You know, um, as a freelancer, you might look at your bank balance and living in the gig economy, you might not know when the gig, next gig is coming. Um, so having this peace of mind and looking into the future and thinking, you know, um, how much money do I need to survive half a year um, is what I have enough. Yeah. And that that was, I also would recommend, you, you also asked about uh, financial resilience. Yeah. Uh, and I would say the first step uh, you should go is, that you um, that you do have the money for half a year to survive because that will really reduce stress and so it will enable that you can deal much better with decisions you have to make and also you also have the the base to to make plans because if you are always if you are really totally under under pressure financially it's so difficult to plan or impossible basically and so, like, the first step should be try to get the money you need for half a year. That's, like, the I would say one of the most important factors of financial resilience as an entrepreneur. Even better, one year. <laughs> and then you can, then you can think about, like, long-term investments. I do have, I will also give a check, I do have, like, a very small checklist to support people to do this first cash, uh, like to this first uh, facing the situation. It includes the the, uh, the situation now, the present, but it also includes your plans and your ideas for the future. And so that you have like a path where you can do the planning, your personal planning. You're kind of speaking of planning for the future. I think uh, freelancers often don't think about retirement or uh, don't think very long term like you said because half a year a year that might seem overwhelming itself these are the first steps to take care of the financial well well-being long term is there anything that uh, it might be very practical you know uh, should people who are freelancers who maybe are starting out as freelancers or are thinking of going from employment to freelance should they start looking into retirement schemes? Should they put money aside in their own bank account? They should, like, the first thing is, like, to make sure that you do have, like, the, the cash to survive half a year or a year. That's the first. And then you can think about long-term invests, investments. And that's very, it's, it's also, this planning is not very complicated. It's, it's basically how long would you like to, li to live? 80, 85, 90, whatever, right? How long do you think you should work like or earn money? I would say I would try to work forever because I like working and otherwise it's very boring. But how long I want or when do I want to stop to be forced to earn money? Uh, and then you just can count. It's very, very easy. I will show that. It's really easy to make like very basic planning um, how to uh, secure your retirement. And then you can see, then you can decide, oh, that's maybe in the moment too, 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 too difficult. But I do have it in mind that in one or two or three or four, five years, I, I will start that. And then there are some skills, and I also will teach this, how to invest. There are very, very few rules how to do it in a rational or in a proper way. 
which is like makes sense. So that's kind of that's all part of the the today workshop. Yeah, yeah, that's what people can can expect uh, at Node. They will have like this kind of first uh, overview what's 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 the present situation financially, and they will also have like basic ideas of a planning, and they will know how they would invest if they can invest. These are definitely some fantastic skills which the workshop participants will be able to learn. Um, and, and thinking about long-term planning and financial literacy, I wanted to share something I read recently. Um, there was an article investigating the financial literacy gender gap, which uh, concluded that women's financial literacy skills are less developed. And often that is because of a lack of confidence in this area. So is this um, still a man's world? Did, did you kind of come across this? Yes, yes, many times for sure. I'm always like like um, meeting the so-called experts, right? Investment experts. Very often I'm the, the only mm. woman. Very, very often. And for me, it's part of the fun I really have with this job because, it's, because I do have like this doctorate. So people are a bit kind of... Um, impressed uh, and I really like to play this game with these guys to tell them come on don't tell me stories let's talk about the the real things right my personal confidence in financial in the financial world or in the financial business is very much based on my knowledge because I know a lot of things and so I can be confident because I do have this knowledge. That therefore, we need kind of knowledge uh, because it helps to create confidence. And in my personal experience, I wouldn't agree with this study you mentioned. In my personal, I do work with uh, women as well as with men clients. And in my personal experience, it's much more like that women very often underestimate their skills and their knowledge, whereas men tend to overestimate their knowledge and their skills. I think that's, for me, at least the basic uh, finding in my personal research, in my experience. I've come across job listings that um, had this small kind of disclaimer at the end of it saying that um, very often women feel like if they don't tick all the boxes on the list job listing, if they have don't have all the requirements, you know, then they don't apply. And men do. So please do apply if you feel like you feel like it would be a good fit. There are there are also another um, studies working on uh, online um, portfolios where people do manage their own um, stock markets or stock um, stocks. And the findings in this, um, res uh, in this studies was more that in the end, the, the results of um, portfolios managed by women were much better than the ones of men because men tend to trade much more to take much more risks, basically to do a lot of stupid things, which doesn't, yeah, which in the end will really um, minimize their results. Because they think they are so great that they know which stocks will come, come up in the next days. And women do think, oh, I don't know, maybe I will do a bit more like a, a passive way to invest, like just let it, let it go. And do not trade so much. That's that's a very very uh, common finding if you 
compare like uh, the the investment styles of of male persons and female persons you mentioned uh, you're the only woman in the room often and and i see how that's exciting for you for someone who has the knowledge and experience and authority but um i think it can definitely be intimidating for people who are only starting out what um yeah What I do often when I want to learn about something new is go to YouTube and just learn the basics from there. And and oftentimes it's prim it's primarily men discussing these topics, especially financial topics, and then they're the loud voices in the space. Yeah, but there are also more and more women. Uh, like in there is like at least in Germany, there is a huge community of online bloggers and uh, video bloggers. Uh, like uh, supporting people to to learn how to invest, uh, and I think yeah, the majority even today are male persons, but there are more and more women coming coming into this field. The last question I also would say it's very difficult for me to recommend resources because, and it's also it's it's really difficult because I'm. I would recommend one book. It's in German. It's really great. It's one I've from in my personal experience the, or in my personal view, it's the best book uh, in in the market today, but it's only in German. So it doesn't make sense to recommend it. Um, I would, I would, I also do, what I also can offer is, uh, and it's very easy to translate it uh Into in, into um, into English via Deeple or whatever. Uh, I do write for Get Abstract. Get Abstract is a company um, like selling abstracts for people who don't like to read the books themselves. <laughs> I regularly write uh, about financial books, and so I really could recommend some of the books I reviewed. And uh, I also could offer to um, to give the, the abstract so people can deal with that. And there are some some books which are really great. We'll add a link to the description of this podcast so you can uh, check the abstracts that Bridget wrote. Thank you very much. I think these are and we've gotten so much um, incredible knowledge and advice from you, and then some tools that will be definitely helpful to people who are listening to this podcast. Um, it's really a pleasure uh, talking to you today. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Curating Tools. My guest today was Bridget Bossold, um, lecturer, independent financial coach and consultant who leads the Managing Your Finances as an Arts and Culture Freelancer workshop for Node Center for Curatorial Studies. If you'd like to shape upcoming episodes and gain access to more members-only content, try our membership, which starts at only 2.95 euros per month. Get a free trial via the link in the description. Check it out and thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.